This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today's sponsor is Audible.com, who has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial and free audiobook at www.audiblepodcast.com slash slateabc. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club for the month of January 2016. I'm Katie Waldman, Wards Correspondent at Slate, and I'm joined today from New York by Perul Segal from the New York Times Book Review. Hi, Perul. Hey, Katie. And by culture critic Megan O'Rourke. Hey, Megan. Hey, Katie and Perul. Today, we'll be discussing Purity, the latest novel from Jonathan Franzen, and the usual rules about spoilers apply. We'll be giving away some plot points, so if you haven't yet read Purity and don't want to know what happens, please turn off this podcast, go read the book, and come back. We don't want to corrupt you. Um, so, Purity is a big, sweeping Dickensian novel about a young woman, Pip whose search for her lost father takes her from Oakland to Bolivia to Denver. Um, it's also about Andreas Wolf, a Julian Assange-like figure who runs the Sunlight Project, an internet outfit that leaks private information in the service of radical transparency. Also in play are Layla, a journalist, and Tom, her editor, and a lot of parents and a few spouses, all of whose storylines intertwine in at times deliberately outlandish ways. The structure, though, is fairly straightforward. The story unfolds over seven sections or modules, each dedicated to the perspective of a single character. So there's Pip, Andreas, Layla, Tom, Pip, and then Andreas again. I guess I'd like to start by asking you, Megan, uh, where you thought the heart of this novel was in any of these particular seven sections. Oh, that's a good question, and that's a hard one, and I have been trying to answer that for myself because I think that one thing I experienced is that some of the writing I liked most maybe wasn't really the writing that was the most central to the book necessarily. Um, I would say kind of on a plot and thematic level, you know, Pip is really the heart of the book and it would be her, her story that really ties everything together. It's her quest, right. That kind of brings together these disparate characters and, and through whom we, it's through her that we find out how they're all connected I think in terms of the sections I liked the most, um, some of 
the section about Tom, some of the section about Andreas and his childhood, actually, I thought was really interesting. Um, it wasn't actually the pit sections that I was the most compelled by personally. Prola, did you feel the same way? I violently agree. Yeah, I think Pip is supposed to be the sort of glue of this book, and she's just, at least for me, and I understand why this is perhaps interesting for friends, and she's so much of a cipher when the real heat from this book seems to come from the mothers. Like, this is a book about every character in this book has a completely fraught, borderline, inappropriate, deeply strange relationship with his or her mother, and the it, it really seems to be those particular axes gave this book a lot of tension and interest, if not always forward momentum, but that's really where I felt like he, I felt Franzen was most interested. I felt Franzen was fascinated by these particular bonds, and I felt like it was particularly interesting to him. Um, I mean, and then I, I did enjoy some of, like, you know, this is a book, like, Franzen I've always felt as, like, two writers. One, he's, like, an op-ed writer, and he sort of has these riffs on totalitarianism and the internet and feminism. And then he's, like, very much, you know, a family writer and sort of obsessed with the sort of family romance and these sorts of odd, claustrophobic bonds that we have with each other. And any time he's on the second topic, I feel like the book just sort of really finds its form. I totally agree. And I think, you know... It was interesting because Andreas Wolf is the kind of Julian Assange-like character, right? And there's a lot of material in here about him and his ideas about the Internet. And there's quite a lot of sort of, as you put it, op-ed type writing about the Internet and these ideas of, you know, transparency. And, and Brandon, you know, has, I think, his eyebrow cocked quite high at a lot of yeah. um, the ways that we think about the Internet. So, and I think, you know, in some ways he's right. That writing felt a bit like it would have, felt innovative 10 years ago, yeah, whereas yeah. the, maybe, right, <laughs> whereas the, whereas the writing about family, and this is true of the corrections, which I think is just an amazing book, um, the writing about family, the writing about Andreas and his mother when he's little, I mean, it's extraordinary and creepy mm. and weird right. and somehow entirely persuasive and funny. Like, he manages to get a kind of range of tone of from horror to humor that I think is really remarkable in some of the family stuff. And yet it doesn't feel, maybe with the exception of Annabelle, Pip's mother, it doesn't feel kind of concocted or confected to me. So I just totally, totally agree. It's the mother of the child. And then Tom and his relationship to Annabelle, um, who turns out to be Pip's mother, spoiler, that section is just a very powerful section of the claustrophobia of a romantic relationship and how it can nearly destroy you. I was really blown away by that section, yeah. too. Maybe we should talk a little bit about or just um, explain what Andrea's relationship to his mother is like. So she is this uh, beautiful, red-haired, sort of um, unstable light of a woman who is married to a kind of good boy communist collaborator. And um, she is probably insane. Is that right? She has some sort of mental illness yeah. and she yeah. basically seduces him over the course of his childhood so he's drawing images of women or he's he's drawing sketches of women and she's having these suggestive conversations with him where she's trying to get him to admit that the woman is her I thought or that's how I read it and basically she uh, screws with his mind throughout his upbringing 
And he says that his drive to then go out and sleep with a lot of women and to um, renounce his family is a way of protecting her from harm, like as if by polluting himself, he is preventing her from the guilt of polluting him directly. Um, so it's it's a very twisted dynamic there. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's twisted, but then if you... I mean, all of the mothers in this book have some... They're all massively... I mean, inappropriate is such a poor word for what they are. They seep into their children, right? Like, there's sort of like this book is about the horror of, like, boundarylessness in families, and particularly mm-hmm. with mothers and small children. And apparently a lot of this actually comes from Franzen's own relationship with his mother, um... I think in interviews he said that, you know, as a child, he he and his mother were alone a lot. His father traveled, his older siblings were away, and they just, you know, he just felt completely permeated by the force of personality of his mother. And in so many ways, like, I just feel like, again and again, we see this playing out in these characters, you know, the specter of children who are are small and are sort of saddled with adult needs and wants that are so strange and outsized, and how it can take, in, in this case, in this book, it takes them all sort of like a lifetime to sort of figure out first of all, how to identify it and then what to do with it. Even Pip, to some degree, um, Annabelle has Pip to sort of have a friend um, in the same way that Katya has Andreas to sort of have a steady companion. I think there's a sentence in the book that she asks nothing from him but to be constantly delighted by her and to be close to her. Um, mm. And even with Tom, we have something that his mother's a little bit more in control in certain ways, but, you know, she's viciously competitive when Tom gets together with Annabelle. And so you, you sort of like see that, you know, none of these mothers are sort of like able to contain themselves in their own bodies in this funny way. They just leak into their children in this sort of very destructive and interesting way. Yeah, that's fascinating, especially because one way in which I think about purity is a purity of bloodline. And so this question of ancestry is really important. And it also made me think a lot about Oedipus, the myth of Oedipus, because that's all about the primal horror of your parents turning up where you least expect them. So, for instance, we have Pip, who is living with Tom and Layla, and she has no idea that this man that she has some sort of attraction to, we're not ever sure if it's really erotic or platonic, is her father. And right. in the same way, there are these sort of eruptions of the latent or of of uh, parent parental qualities in these characters that are just like this really terrifying recognition and also um, sort of an alien presence in their lives. And so I thought definitely like he refers a lot to Hamlet and he, yeah. I think, refers to... Well, definitely Dickens. There's a lot of allusions in this book, but I was definitely feeling the Oedipus vibe a lot. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. interesting because it's, it, it's, it's something that's so hot and difficult to talk about. This day. Like I went back and I was looking at reviews and I was wondering like, how many of them mentioned that all these sorts of like odd incestuous, quasi-incestuous themes running through this book. And reviews didn't touch this topic, more or less. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People would talk about the internet. Yeah. People would talk a lot about you know, tips as, you know, sort of homage to great expectations or that sort of stuff. But really, people really stayed very, very far away from some of the most central themes in this book, which is very interesting. Well, because, you know, the Miss Havisham-like character is the mother, mm-hmm. right? It would be yeah. as if, um, what's her name, Estelle, is, is the girl in Great Expectations. It would be as if, you know, the search here is to both become your own person and also integrate the parent into mm-hmm. you, who you are, while kind of rejecting the parent. And it's this impossible task for purity, right, to figure out how she can have her mother in her life without being totally by her. Yeah. By her. Yeah. And I think both, I think Tom has that problem and Andreas obviously 
has that problem. And arguably, Andreas is actually kind of ultimately destroyed by his mother in some long-term sense, right? Um, yes. Whereas Pip, I think we're meant to feel sort of comes out from under her mother's more, you know, polluting shadow. But that's one of the tensions of the ending of the book is, you know, does she or doesn't she? Today's sponsor is Audible.com. Audible is offering our listeners a free 30-day trial membership and a free audiobook. Just go to audible.com slash slateabc and browse the over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. You could even use Audible to download Jonathan Franzen's first novel, The Corrections, which both Perul and Megan uh, recommend as a good appetizer for purity. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash slateabc. That's audiblepodcast.com slash slateabc and get started today. Could we maybe actually talk a little bit more about Pip? Because you both mentioned that you thought she was maybe too slight a character or just not rich enough or as rich as the other characters. And that was definitely um, something that the New York Times review said as well, as I think the reviewer said she was not weird enough um, and she does not have sufficient substance to hold the narrative. Um, she can be feisty, mm-hmm. but her sensibility is not rich and she is too passive. And I'm not sure I agreed with that. I thought... To some extent, she had to be a blank slate, like the sort of pure uh-huh. undriven snow, like she is something that other characters write upon, I guess. I don't know. That's a very awkward way of saying it. Um, but I also found her to be pretty spirited and funny, and I enjoyed spending time with her. So, I mean, did you have any moments where you thought, wow, Pip is letting me down here? I <laughs> mean, <laughs> <laughs> I... I, I it's complicated. I mean, I just remember there's one scene where we see her emailing with Andreas when she's deciding whether or not to go down and join his compound in Bolivia. And those emails are my favorite point, my, my favorite sorts of uh, encounters with Tip because you hear her voice and she's very funny and she's very ironic and she's very irreverent. And because so much of this book is in her point of view, I wanted some more of that to leak into it. I wanted her to see the world in some kind of way. And I understand, you know, she has to be this blank slate we're supposed to attach to and see through her eyes, but I wanted something more. Yeah, as Toyvin says in his review, something stranger, or even just something, yeah, something a little bit more particular to her in the way that when we're reading Andreas's section or Tom's section, there are such strange phrases and such strange slants of perspective that you really do feel, whatever you think about the success of the sections or not, that you are seeing through one particular set of eyes. I think that's true, and I think he, I think Franzen probably set himself a very difficult task in the sense that I think he was really trying to convey, and to some degree does very powerfully, um, what it's like to be that kind of like, almost like mentally fleshy 20, some you know, early 20 something where you're like, you're still not totally sure what your own contours are, right? Mm-hmm. And what the points of, um, you know, kind of no transgression are with you. And, and I think I actually thought the opening of the novel was not the right opening. Um, so I actually thought that, you know, it starts with the scene that was much quoted in the reviews of she brings a boy home and she kind of leaves him in her room for a very, very long time while she goes downstairs and gets interviewed by this woman, Anna Gretz, who's a former East German, who turns out much later, knew Andreas and is kind of, you know, working Pip over to try to get him to get her to work with Andreas. And, the beginning of the novel, this all just seems so bizarre and incidental. Yeah. And the fact that she would go much later, you realize, oh, it probably was quite hard for her to get away from Anagret because Anagret really did have this, you know, mission. But at the time reading it, I was just like, this is so bizarre. And it felt yeah. like farce. 
but not, but I didn't know what the terms of the farce were yet, you know? So although I found certain moments of the dialogue kind of excellent, um, she, she, you know, sees the boy texting something kind of mean about her to another guy because she kept him waiting for so long. And, you know, later they have this, you know, or, or at the same time they have this kind of, um, you know, raunchy discussion where he's, they're, they're sort of facing off and he's complaining that, she, you know, he should have just left. And she says, you know, you didn't seem to mind me when your dick was in my mouth. And that felt like a moment of dialogue that did feel like that's who she was and what she would say. And it was kind of direct and aggressive. But it just somehow, the, the staging of that particular scene at the beginning was so long. And it, it had, again, you know, this is again what friends and does so well, these scenes that start in sort of realism and end up in absurdism. I think of that great scene from the corrections where Chip has the salmon in his pocket at the end of the which is so great. And this scene is a little bit like that, but it's like, I just felt like it came too early. And actually, if the book had been reorganized a bit and there had been a bit more about Kip and what her job was and who she, you know, and just more of her interacting with the world, then this might have been more revealing. But it's, I found it a sort of puzzling opening. I found it quite hard to get traction at the beginning. And I thought it was less assured as a result than some of the rest of the I agree. I, agree. I think like every every character in this book, Franzen is given one big secret and several mm-hmm. identifiable wants. And I think with mm-hmm. Kip, like we get when we meet her, we're like, okay, she's in how much debt is she in? Like one hundred thirty thousand dollars, and she yeah. wants to know who her father is. And at the end of the book, right. again, spoiler alert, she's no longer. You know, we we understand that the, the debt will be sort of taken care of, and she has figured out the secret of her origins, and she ends for me there. You know, I don't have a yeah. sense of what's going on in the way that some of the stronger characters in the book, you get a sense of them sort of moving on past this book or having, you know, other moving in other directions, vibrating in different ways. But she really is, tell me these things. Okay, done. That's really true. That's really true. Because we, she becomes a journalist and then she also, you know, and she also goes and works with Andreas's kind of, you know, Sunshine Project. But you don't really know if she cares about the journalism, right. if this matters to her, if if all these millennial like things, you know, and kind of earnestness, is that really part of who she is or is it just yeah. a kind of, you know, affectlessness? Okay, sure. You know, it's very hard to tell. That's what I mean by she's sort of like mentally fleshy. Like she just yeah, sort of yeah. is unformed still. Yeah, I do. Think Layla, she... I thought it was actually a great character, like very real to me and her regrets and her desire to have a child and the kind of accommodation she makes with Tom, I thought was a really interesting, pretty persuasive character. Did, I mean, did the um, sort of obsession, or not obsession, but the strong desire to have a child rub you the wrong way at all? Because I know that a lot of people were angry at what they thought was a typically Franzenian um, stereotypical view of women where they're, you know, weeping over the child they didn't have or they're crazy histrionic mothers or something. Um, I didn't actually find that myself. I thought that these were pretty complicated characters. Mm-hmm. It didn't bother me. That seems like an experience that women had, and it, it seems actually grounded. And one reason it didn't bother me was I thought it was grounded fictionally in a very interesting decision that she has to make between these two men, and she really makes this decision. And so it's not just like she's some single woman who's, you know, da da and then decides not to have a child or is unempowered. She actually makes this very kind of concrete decision about what she wants her life to be like, given the, the contours of it. Um, there's two men she's involved with, but it means the consequences she's not going to have, you know, she and Tom are not going to have this child. I don't know. I thought that was actually kind of very fascinating about how these decisions end up potentially being made in the context of a relationship. Yeah. So I, I, mean, I thought that was a bit unfair. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's also in the context of that character for whom, like, we understand she has thoughts about success and ambition and language, mm-hmm. and, you know, so we're seeing this whole constellation of characteristics. I mean, I think a fairer charge might be, I was reading this book, and I started to wonder if it fails the Bechdel test, and it kind of, <laughs> does. like, yeah. one scene where, like, women were, Lila, Lila, as Megan points out, is a very strong character, and Pitt discussed a case that we're working on together. But by and large, when we see two women in this book, and this happens across fandoms, over you, when they're talking about something, it's it's a man usually. It's about like love troubles, yeah. and again, just sort of, it's just one of those things that does it mean that this book is misogynist or sexist? I that's not so interesting to me. I think it's you know, but it did feel glaring to me. You know, more than like the conversations about babies, more than the conversations about like the dangerousness of mother love. It was really just sort of they do become. Um, yeah, this does seem you know, to be the overwhelming thing. That's totally illuminating, Carl, because I think that's part of why I found Pip so hard to place. Like, she really doesn't mm. interact with any women. I mean, Anna Griff, who, you know, they have this kind of complicated thing where they're living in this house together, but that's not a real interaction. And she then really is kind of fascinated by Layla, who is a kind of, you know, potential mentor and model for her. But they, again, that relationship is not fully drawn. And it's kind of a fascinating paradox because Franzen is obviously very interested in women. You know, you think about yeah. freedom also had a female character at the heart of it. Um, he's really interested in writing from a woman's perspective and writing about women's lives. And he had the sister and the corrections and the mother, but it is a bit, I, I've never fully found his female characters convincing and I've always not been able to put my finger on exactly why and I wonder if it does have a bit to do with they don't seem to interact with other women. They're really interacting with mm-hmm. men. And, and when they do interact with yeah. yeah. And when they do interact with women, right, so she's kind of fascinated or has this relationship with Anna Gret. The most interesting conversation they have about is Stephen, right? She's interested in this married guy who lives in her yeah. communal household and Anna Gret is like, he's weak and this hurts, you know, pits so strongly. And then later she becomes fascinated by fascinated Colleen who lives on the commune. They talk about Andreas. Later she's fascinated with Leela. They talk about Tom. So it's really, I mean, I think he's, as you say, you know, very interested in writing from women's point of view and sort of exploring female experience, but I don't really think he understands how little women think about men. Yeah, (laughs) and there's also... And I think that failure is matched by, like, a really astute ability to communicate misogyny and to show men being misogynist. Um, So even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't feel that way, he channels it really, really well. And I'm thinking of one passage where I think Andreas is imagining his mother speaking to Annegret, and he just goes off on this, like, really virulent, foul description of, like, the two, I don't even want to say it, but, like, this terrible word for women, talk, 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 terrible word, terrible word, terrible word. And, you know, I read it and I sort of had to take a deep breath and be like, yeah, that was a moment of like really fiery hatred of women right there. And I do feel like there's sort of a, the women are, a lot of them are very perceptively drawn and they're like insightful moments and they have good lines, but there is kind of uncomfortable Hatred, I think, for some of the characters, like for Annabelle and even for Anna Gret sometimes. Um, and I'm not sure it's a coincidence that their names are so similar. Mm. I think that mm-hmm. there's kind of one woman running through this book, mm-hmm. and she's a terrible monster mother. And if you're not the terrible monster mother, then you're a cipher because you're not allowed to have sort of a realized 
identity outside of that, although I guess Layla is an exception. Anyway, I really don't want to jump on the bandwagon and say that <laughs> Franzen is sexist. I'm not interested in that, but there was like some friction uh, there for me. I mean, it is interesting. I mean, because I have a question, like, is, was Annabelle alluring to either of you as a character? I mean, could you see her appeal? Because this is something that I think, you know, she's painted to be so monstrous. You know, she forces Tom to sit down when he pees. She forces him to show all, like, his letters and, like, there's complete transparency. Mm. But I think we're also supposed to understand that she has some sort of hold on him and a hold on Pip. Like, there is supposed to be something... Um, exciting or appealing about her that keeps them coming back. Did you did you sense that, either of you? Well, you know, I, I sensed it for Tom. I mean, partly because I thought he's so, you know, he's very young, right? He's very inexperienced. He has this, um, Franzen has this great description about how he's a little bit short and his face looks very young, so he has to be hard for him to, like, get girls. And, and then Annabelle was just very glamorous and very tough and fiery, um, and demanding artist and, and quite attractive shows up and it seems totally plausible to me that he would then mm-hmm. get caught up in this kind of psychoerotic, you know, love affair with her in the way that one can, you know, when you're 19 years old or 20 years old. And actually their relationship reminded me, I don't know if you've ever read the book, um, Sylvia by Leonard Michaels, but it's a very similar relationship. It's a kind of novel or novella, but it's based on a real relationship he had with a woman who ended up killing herself. And it's, it's incredibly similar. Um, Sylvia is more grounded in realism than this. Like this mm-hmm. verges over into potential farce at times. But I did find that mm-hmm, compelling, mm-hmm. partly because I thought Cranston really captured the way that Tom was like, I know I have to get out. I'm totally yeah. miserable, but mm-hmm. couldn't do it. And then with Annabelle, I found it more, I actually initially, I'm under stress on this, found it difficult to recognize, um, reconcile Tom's Annabelle with Pip's Annabelle, because one Mm. problem for me with the Pip story was that I was completely uninterested in her relationship with her mother. Like, I understood it was bad, but I found it kind of boring, and I didn't get this woman seemed so kind of pathetic. I was like, why does she care? Well, of course, we know the answer. I mean, you kind of, you have one mother, right? So she's always this burden, and, you know, in this case, she would be a burden and a disappointment, but you would still be like, that's my mother. But I didn't find it that interesting, because the woman just seemed like such a drip. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whereas, but then I thought, okay, by the time I got to the end of the book, I thought, okay, that is potentially who this woman becomes. This fiery wrestle woman does become this kind of pathetic, mm. closed in, mm. slightly drippy drag that she is to Pip, who nonetheless feels this kind of grudging, you know. But I, I didn't find in Pip's relationship with her any sense of the mother as a glamorous figure. I found her as like an obligation and a worry mm-hmm. and a weight. Mm-hmm. But right. maybe I'm supposed to find that. I don't know. Well, I can see how for Tom and probably for Franzen too, like the romance of Annabelle is like the romance of purity itself. So when you talk about yeah. like, what does this character mean? Moral absolutism. And these right. are men who are like drawn to extremes mm-hmm. and like, what are the pros and cons of that? So I think like she's a useful way to think through those themes. And Absolutely. I guess maybe it's possible that Franzen also wants to argue that once you get past all the glamour, gosh, it's really drippy to like be so, be so obsessed with purity um, and, you yeah. know, not eat meat or anything. I'm not sure if that. Well, or just how, you know, we started, we began by talking about this kind of corrupting, corrupting influences of people. And it's like the corruption of the own, of your own aspects of yourself, you know, because um, mm-hmm. I found it really, I liked that 
Annabelle was actually in some ways a very talented and very committed artist, but that she couldn't pull it together. That, again, seemed plausible to me. Um, right. And I think Estrada had been the only character, but because we have Layla, who's like the opposite, I didn't feel like, I, you know, I mean, again, it's like there is a range of female characters here. Um, I thought that that purity that Annabelle has is in some ways yeah, it is a truly, genuinely pure thing that you kind of admire somehow, but it gets completely corrupted somehow, right? And so it's an interesting dualism between, like, purity and corruption. Um, yeah. And Andreas has this, too. Mm-hmm. He's kind of the foil for her, right, with the Sunlight Project, but then he ends up thinking of himself as the killer, and he's this very corrupted, kind of Oscar Wildean character who has this secret murder. What did you guys think of that, by the way? It's <laughs> <laughs> like a secret murder at the heart of this book. It's so melodramatic. But in a way, at first I was like, are you kidding me? But then in a way, I thought, yeah. okay, this kind of, you know, is of a piece with the, the fictional construct of this novel and its themes. I don't know. What did you think? I mean, I thought it was maybe one of the most youthfully naive and innocent things he does in the book, which is a terrible yeah. thing to say about a murder, but it <laughs> Yeah. I mean, he basically, he tries to become a knight in shining armor for this young girl. And, you know, until that point, he's just sleeping around. He's publishing uh, coded sexual poems about his mother that also make fun of the socialist state in journals. Like, he's just, he's fucking around, basically. And then suddenly, um, he finds a mission and there's kind of a purity of intent there too so mm-hmm. I mean it's obviously the thing that it's not even the thing that destroys him it's the thing that sort of sets the plot in motion because it yeah. connects him with Tom and eventually with his daughter but it has that strange um quality of being really central to the plot and like not necessarily that emotionally important I thought um, Are you, yeah, I really is about the bloodiness of the, some of the of the book as well. Like it's, um, I mean, again, you know, it, it is sort of self consciously Dickensian in this way. You know, these little urchins looking for their origins, this great financial windfall at the end, and um, the sort of at least for friends and like something of a happy ending. And it felt it felt um, in a book that sort of insofar as I can see a message or I can see some sort of, you know, overriding theme that sort of, it pushed, the book was sort of pushing us towards like looking at complexity and looking at messiness and not looking at ideals, but looking at people. That felt a little coercively tidy to me, you know? And mm-hmm. I felt like in a strange way, it was at odds with what the book was actually trying to do. Well, because it feels to me like, and this is something you were getting at earlier, Pooh, like, to me, the book really, and I think this is part of why Pip's narrative didn't feel like the heart of the book, but the heart of the kind of wounds of this book that, that drive it psychically are these, they are these men who are trying in some way to protect a wounded woman, right? And the kind of er version of that is, is the young Andreas first trying to love and protect his mother, who he's as a beautiful, perfect creature, like she has the kind of, you know, she's part of the East German upper level society and she has the whole thing down, right? She knows exactly how to kind of act the part and everyone, you know, relies on her and sees her as this perfect figure, but then behind the scenes, she's falling apart and sleeping around and kind of, you know, um, a mess. And then he tries to protect this little girl, Annabelle, who is this kind of portrayed in very angelic terms and has been raped by her stepfather. 
And this model is what we see throughout the book, right? Tom has this with his mother, who's also German, and then with Annabelle, right? And there's something there that's really messy and unwieldy and troubled and about masculinity and femininity and, you know, the kind of post-sexual revolution. And it's like deep and concerning. And the whole armature of the plot actually doesn't really have that much to do with it. It's interesting because you also have Andreas, maybe we can seg into talking about the end where, spoiler, Andreas Mm -hmm. jumps off a cliff in Bolivia um, and seems to be doing this as a kind of self-sacrifice. And as you were talking about that, it reminded me that he jumps off something high and hurts himself earlier in the book. He jumps off a bridge. um, And that's when we first get the revelation that he wants to wound himself so that he doesn't blame his mother for doing it to him. And actually before that, Pip is taking a questionnaire from Annegret. This is like the the recruiting materials that um, Annegret gives her to go to the Sunlight Project. And there's a question that says, uh, your friends are all disappearing. Uh, what do you do? And she says, well, I'd go to my mom. And then, then Annegret pushes her and says, well, then your mom disappears. What do you do? Mm-hmm. And Pip says, I'd probably kill myself since by then it would be obvious that having any connection to me wasn't good for a person's mm-hmm. health. And I think that move just seated in that very early scene and then uh, reprised with Andreas twice um, is really important somehow. Like, what is mm-hmm. the relationship of this sacrifice to gender relationships and to purity? Because that's like the ultimate act of, of purity, right, is a self-sacrifice. I think there's something there, but I don't know what it is, if you guys have any thoughts. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, I found his death silly. And, and I, I, I just, again, I thought, it felt to me like the character needed to be gotten rid of at this point. You know, like he'd reached mm-hmm. his, and he's sort of like, his utility had come to a close. You know, whatever his secret mm-hmm. was, it was out. And I mean, this is when, I think, I think Twibbee made this point in his review too. I think he called Pip a pawn in the book. And I think that a number of these characters just feel like pawns. They feel instrumental. And I don't feel, like, I, I believe Andreas, like, as we've talked about, like, Andreas' early life um, is, is so interesting and so messy and so strange and and tender and just... And then as he sort of becomes this figurehead and he becomes a sort of mouthpiece for what Franzen thinks, you know, is uh, evil and dangerous in the modern totalitarianism, he becomes less and less real to me and less and less important and less and less, you know, character with his own, mm. you know, yeah. desires. So when he, yeah, when he was like sort of thrown off that, when Franzen flung him off that cliff, you know, <laughs> he was long, he was yeah, long dead to me at that point. I was like, okay, yeah, yeah. You know, that's fine. There you go. I think that's totally right. He becomes a figurehead and he becomes a figurehead for all of this, um, you know, thinking about the internet as a totalitarian space. And I couldn't really figure out, and maybe you guys could like, was, I couldn't tell if Pip, you know, whose real name is Purity, mm. with her kind of useful kind of indifference to the Sunlight Project, was she somehow, like, is she somehow the purity that is the like anti-internet? I, I just couldn't work out all those thematic relationships, if you know what I mean, because so much of the book as it develops is about like this totalitarianism of the internet and, you know, the world we now inhabit. And, you know, she's clearly positioned in that somehow as this kind of, you know, young millennial who both has earnest longings for sustainability and seems totally disconnected from anything political. But yes, just to go back to what you're saying, by the time, he goes off the cliff. I sort of felt like the novel had gone very far into 
kind of symbolism at that point and away from characterization. Yeah, and sort of incoherent symbolism in a certain way. Like, he play, I mean, like a lot of these sort of, I mean, there's seven parts in this book, and each one of them plays with ideas about privacy versus secrecy, identity, mm-hmm. purity versus, you know, so that at, the, at the same time, like, if one, and one wants to sort of, like, knit these together into some kind of, some kind of grander idea or something like that. And it's very hard. And like the closest I could come to is sort of looking at the example of Lila who's and sort of the sort of uh, life that she makes for herself at the end, you know, or, or the last time we see her in which she's married to one man, this, you know, faded mm-hmm. sort of alcoholic writer, and she's in love with another man. And it's a life that makes no sense, but it's in an odd way a good life. You know, she manages to take care of one man and she's happy in another way. And it's, it's, it makes no sense. It's in violation of all kinds of ideals. And yet it's ordinary life with like a certain kind of dignity and a certain kind of love in it and a certain kind of and purity. A kind of purity. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and it's, yeah. But it's because it's so messy, it's pure. You know what I mean? Like purity itself yeah. is such a dangerous totally. concept in this book, but because that is something that's so aside from any kind of um, moralism or any kind of easy, cheap moralism, it is, it is pure. It is interesting. It is good. That was my favorite part of the book in many ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, the husband is great. I wanted him. Uh, I wanted him to keep coming back. Anytime when Franzen gets a, a chance to sort of riff on writers or the time <laughs> interview or anything like that, it's just, he's, he's great. He's great. Totally. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the plague of literary Jonathan's? What is he up to there? <laughs> So Charles is uh, is a writer, a famous writer, and he um, has some great lines and he discourses on the state of literature circa whenever this book is uh, 2016, 2015. Um, and he says there's a plague of literary Jonathans. And then he also shouts out to uh, Zadie Smith. Um, is this Jonathan making fun of himself or making fun of his critics? Or I, I don't know. I just thought he was having fun with it. And I love that yeah. the novel seems to be sort of impish in that way, but... Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I thought he was making fun of himself and the critics and the whole culture of... Yeah. But I agree that that character, the the novel, sort of, you know, alcoholic, intemperate, slowly paralyzed, you know, becomes paralyzed, um, you know, aging novelist is a very real character. <laughs> you know, it's the oldest stereotype in the world. Somehow he manages to be a real person. And it really is through the, the matrix of that relationship with Layla. Mm. Um that it, that it feels real, you know, and again, not like it's trying to do this double duty as symbolic work. Yeah, and I love that his saving grace was his sense of humor, like that mm-hmm. the comic came in and sort of rescued him because I think that's actually something Franzen does on a larger scale. Like he can get really bogged down in like the ideology and like the overdetermined Freudian dynamics and all this stuff, mm-hmm. but then he just like sneaks in with a really funny line or just like a cute <laughs> statement and you forgive him because he, you know, he brings that to the table as well. Yeah, I agree. and that was what made the corrections so good, right? The corrections, yeah. there were some of these kind of larger themes, but it was the, the characterization, the storytelling was really what carried that novel, and then there were these little posts along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that balance somehow felt really right to me, whereas here it feels like there are these, like, huge towers announcing what's happening. Yeah. Um, and then the characterization sort of droops from there. But when the characterization takes over and the storytelling and that, that, that as you said, that impish humor and also real, because there is something of the iconoclast about Franzen, it, it makes him a very useful observer when he's at mm-hmm. his best. You know, mm-hmm. it makes him a really distinctive bringer mm-hmm. together of different tones that are not often found in the same range, I think, mm-hmm. in other novelists. But it feels like, to me, too often this kind of goes for these 
bigger points and it, it kind of lets go of its own. It's a funny thing where you always think like as a writer, you have to sort of know what you're good at and just be okay with yeah. that and not try to do other mm-hmm. things. Too, yeah. you know? <laughs> um, that's a good point. Yeah, actually, there was one moment. Uh, do you remember when uh, Andreas tells Pip about his theory of identity? And he says, you know, we both need secrets, and then we need right. to share the secrets. And it's the secrets that persuade us that we're different from other people and give us a sense of self. But at the same time, um, we need to validate that sense of self by sharing those secrets um, and opening up intimacy with other people. And that's the paradox at the heart of the Internet age is we, we need to have secrets before we can share them and the kind of melting of all personal boundaries that um, the internet allows is going to mean that all of our individual personalities are going to collapse and that's something that you see in micro microcosm with the Tom and Annabelle relationship where they're supposed to be so equal and so as one that their individual boundaries are destroyed and I at I was impressed by how neatly he sort of tied it all up. And I was like, okay, this is like the thesis statement of the book. But then like a few pages later, I just had a sour taste in my mouth because I didn't want it handed to me on a platter like that. And I so much Mm -hmm. more enjoyed what you were saying, the sort of colorful observations and experiential stuff. I mean, I think that's one thing that the novel also like leaves open in a little, in a way, like what secrets are worth bringing to light and which ones need to be left alone. Mm-hmm. Right, and I think that that's one thing the novel does well, which is like, yeah, you know, you can poke around and you can be like, okay, we have a right. Like the novel sort of makes a case that we have a right to understand our origins. We need to know where we came from, right? But mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. context of personal relationships, we see like, oh, there's a great line where, like, I think again, this is the Tom and Annabelle relationship where he was talking about the the hell of soul merging, and he was just like, how do you want someone when you become her? You know, and so yeah. that idea, yeah. like that kind of. Yep. Um, in certain ways, in certain relationships, how important it is to have one's own narrative, one's own story, one own, you know. Um, and that's, yeah, I, I mean, I wanted a little bit more openness in other ways on different themes, but I think he gets that right. All right. Well, I think that brings us to the close of our discussion. Um, in conclusion, uh, Parole, would you recommend this book? I, I, I would. I would. <laughs> that sounded so unpersuasive. I would. I would recommend this book. Um, it's got so many lumpy, bumpy parts. The prose is a little slack, but I do think that what I like about Franzen is that he is he's ambitious in the way that he wants to write about things that we're questions that we're asking right now. Some of them have no answer. And I do think that he when it comes to things like the internet, when it comes to social media, he you know, he may be cranky, he may be trolling, and it'd be easy to dismiss him, but I think a lot of the questions that he um brings to the fore in this book about secrecy and privacy are important and I think it's well done. I would agree about exactly what Paul was saying about the you know, his ability to identify the questions and to kind of make us think. I I think if one hasn't read Friends in before, I would say start with the correction. Oh yeah. yeah. I would put I would put someone there first. Um but you know, if you're interested in him, look he's he's one of the most ambitious and capacious and able novelists that we have and I think whatever the flaws of this book, um he's trying to do a bunch of serious and interesting things and it's, it's worth reading. I, for me, it grew on me as I went, you know, so at yeah. the beginning, as I said, it kind of hip stuff felt more forced than I was usual used to seeing from him. And I felt as it went on that there was a lot of stuff I really thought was very deeply and powerfully and kind of, you know, creepily portrayed in ways that will stay with me. 
Yeah, um, I would agree with you both. I thought it was just a really pleasurable novel. It was kind of conservative in the sort of old-timey, panoramic, Dickensian, um, just like great propulsive reading experience. And there are a lot of interesting themes going on, but it's also just a lot of fun, uh, very fast moving. So I would recommend it as well. And on that note, thank you guys so much for talking about Parody. This was really fun. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Megan. A few end notes. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store, and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Slate's Audiobook Club is part of the Panoply Network. Find out more about all of our great podcasts at panoply.fm. Our producer is Jason DeLeon. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Perul Segal and Megan O'Rourke, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>